morning, everybody. It's good to be with all of you today. Um, so we're just going to jump right in because strict manuscriptor, and I know I have exactly 115 more words than I'm supposed to have. So that's like roughly 52 seconds too long. So we're going to try and catch right back up. All right. This morning, we are in the, the next to last week of our series on the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And that means, of course, that we're just about at the end. And I have to tell you, I am pretty worried um, because here's the thing that I've learned about teaching through books of the Bible. It's all fun and games until you get to the last chapter. Before you, because before you get there, you can slow down wherever you want and you can kind of pick out interesting things here and there and everybody is happy. Um, but there's no dodging the endings. There's no dodging the endings. And that is particularly true with the Gospel of Mark. Well, why? Well, for starters, because there are at least two of them, which we're going to talk about and get to next week. But also, but also, particularly when we're talking about the Gospels, there, there's the passion problem. The passion problem. Which is a way of talking about the difficulties that arise in both Mark's Gospel and in the other Gospels when it comes to these closing chapters and this slow and steady walk to the cross. We like to talk about the cross at Easter time. Feels a little weird to talk about it in November, but here we are. It might sound weird to say it, but I would contend that we actually, as Christians, we actually have a lot of trouble with the cross. That we don't like to look at it, particularly when it's occupied. This is um, even more true, I think, of Protestants, which, which we are. A funny story, a few years ago, when my son Graham was five or six years old, we were somewhere and we drove by a Catholic church and the Catholic church had a crucifix like on their sign. And my son asked us, like, who's that guy up on the cross? And <laughs> this is a preacher's kid, like this is a problem. He's, been, he's in church now. He's been in church every weekend of his life. And he was like, I don't recognize that. And, and he's right. Because in our tradition, like in a Protestant tradition, the cross is almost always empty. It's almost always empty. And the, the starting point for the message today is that's not a very gospel-centered way of thinking. The gospels are unified in their interest in showing us the event of the crucifixion in all its injustice and all its horror. Some of you might have felt that a moment ago, like Sarah read a long passage talking about this, and it's hard to listen all the way through it. It's part of the reason we chose it for this week. Each of these gospels that we study is careful to walk us through Jesus's last days through his last supper with his disciples, through the moment of his betrayal, through his arrest, through his trial, through his torture, through his murder, and to take their time doing it. But with the exception of one of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John, the resurrected Jesus is only lightly mentioned. It's okay for that to seem odd to you. It is odd. After all, isn't the resurrection, isn't it the resurrection that is the very anchor of our hope and our joy? Is this not what Christian hope is all about, resurrection? Well, perhaps not. 
In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, not explicitly here, Christ resurrected. Calm down, though. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of the resurrection, but I am trying to make a point about where we put our emphasis. And the hypothesis of this sermon is that when we minimize the occupied cross, we must be missing something of deep importance to the very first Christians. And it's worth pausing at least for one Sunday morning and trying to investigate what that might be. What is the thing we're missing? So how can we find that out? We're going to organize our investigation this morning into that question by looking at these three leads. And each of these leads requires that we remember something distinct about the audience of Mark's gospel. As we investigate, the hope is that we might recover a deeper sense of why the cross is so essential to the early church. And I should say here at the beginning that although we're going to quote from chapters 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel at several points, I'm not going to walk through I'm not going to walk through those chapters in the same way that we typically do when we're working through a book. And this is primarily because it would take all day for us to do that. But with even more emphasis than usual, I want to encourage you on your own to take time this week to read through these chapters, Mark 14 and 15 in particular. If part of our point this morning is to push back on our tendency to kind of look away from the cross, then my hope is that this is kind of a perfect action step for you this week, that you look towards it, that you read at least those two chapters at some point boldly. But let's get into the investigation. So lead number one, what's lead number one? Lead number one is a reminder to us that the original audience of Mark's gospel is a community facing persecution. We've covered this a few times throughout the series, but it bears repeating. As far as we can discern, the Jesus story in Mark is written down here for the very first time so that it can be sent via scroll to specific people in these underground churches in the city of Rome. And those churches are underground because the emperor at the time, Nero, is in the process of burning Christians alive in his pleasure gardens and crucifying them along the roads into and out of the city. But the fact that these churches exist to receive that scroll that Mark is sending means the point of the gospel that we're reading can't be conversion. The Jesus story is already known there. And not only is it already known, it's so deeply believed by Roman Christians that they're willing to risk their lives to continue to worship him. So if there's already this lively oral tradition about Jesus, and that oral tradition about Jesus is already generating this deep faith, the question we should really think about is what's the point of sending this document? And the answer must be 
that Mark sends this scroll because there are parts of Jesus's journey to the cross that can be a specific encouragement to a community that is also facing persecution. So what might those parts be? Well, there's another curious quirk in Mark's gospel that distinguishes it from the other gospel narratives. And that quirk is this. With only one exception in the whole book, Mark focuses on public testimony. He writes down stuff that people heard Jesus say and saw Jesus do specifically. This is why we don't get the Christmas stories, the Advent stories, and the Gospel of Mark, because who is sharing them? And it's also why gospel, Mark's Gospel doesn't record the story about Jesus's time in the wilderness, because who else was there? But there is one exception, and it comes in chapter 14, right after the Last Supper, and here's what Mark writes. He writes, they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. We've got three witnesses at this point. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And then Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All right, so question, right? Did you catch the moment without a witness? Where is it? It's the prayer, right? Who's listening to Jesus pray? So why does Mark include this moment? I think the answer is because if we remember who Mark is talking to, we can see that this is precisely the message his readers needed to hear. In this passage, What's Jesus doing, right? He's staring down his own false arrest. He's staring down his own torture, his own murder. And Mark's witness here adds to the oral narrative that the people already had a new scene that works as a precursor of his readers' own fears, as well as a template for their prayers. If Jesus can say, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will, then perhaps you also can possess similar trust. From our vantage point, this moment in the gospel might seem like a moment of dramatic tension building at best, or, or even maybe you maybe have read this passage and thought it feels a bit morbid. Like I've read this passage and thought like I'm uncomfortable with this moment where Jesus seems to not want to do the thing that I know he's going to do. It can make it seem, when we read it, like Jesus is trapped. But I would contend that for a community that's facing persecution, it would have been a great comfort. It would have been a great comfort to see in their own ordeal an echo of Jesus' own experience, especially an echo that's connected to this model that Jesus gives us for how to face your fate with confidence 
specifically confidence in God's faithfulness to you. So what does lead number one then reveal about why Mark emphasizes Jesus' suffering? Well, I think it reveals that Jesus' suffering connects the Christians of Rome to him. It helps them see in Jesus themselves in the moment they're facing. So what about lead number two, right? Lead number two reminds us that this story is written to a community that is in the process of losing its leaders, a community that's losing its leaders. As we've discussed contextually, the great fire of Rome takes place in the year 64. So it's a few dates. I try not to do this too often. Let me give you a couple dates. 64 is the year that the great fire of Rome happens. Nero's persecution of Christians begins right after the great fire because he's blaming them for that fire. And at some point between the year 64 and the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, we have the six-year window of time from the fire to the destruction of Jerusalem. Somewhere in there, we most likely get Mark's gospel. But here's a missing piece that we haven't covered so far in the series, and that is that at least according to church tradition, among the first martyrs during this wave of persecution in this six-year stretch of time are none other than the apostles Peter and Paul. Church tradition holds that both are killed by Nero in or around the year 65. Now, pause for a minute. Those are like the two biggest guys, Paul and Peter. Can you imagine the impact of the execution of Paul and Peter on the early church? I bring this up because if you want to have kind of like a sixth sense style twist to your reading experience with Mark's gospel, go back to the beginning and read it again, paying special attention to Peter, to Peter. Here's what you're going to find. At every moment when the disciples of Jesus get Jesus wrong in this gospel, the mouthpiece of getting it wrong is Peter. He's the guy who puts his foot in his mouth over and over. And this happens, think for a second, this happens in a letter written to Peter's friends in Peter's church right after Peter died. It's wild. Jesus tells Peter in Mark's gospel, get behind me, Satan, in chapter 8. In chapter 9, there's this moment where Peter tries to build tents for ghosts. It's a bad look. <laughs> Mark does not show Peter in a positive light. And that's not the worst. What happens in these last few chapters? Well, Mark writes this moment right with Jesus talking to his disciples where Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Side note here, very hard to mistake how clear that is about what's going to happen. And no one believes him and no one is looking for him. Nonetheless, after Jesus says this, Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. And you have to imagine if you're reading this or hearing this read to you, in the Roman church, you're like, that's him, that's our guy. Listen to how cool he sounds. He's not gonna fall away. And truly, I tell you, Jesus answers, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. 
And Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And Jesus' prediction, of course, comes true. After Jesus is arrested, Peter follows the guards to the palace courts. And while Jesus is being tried and tortured inside, passersby think they recognize him as a disciple and he denies it. And after the third denial, we get the scene where the rooster crows and verse 72 says that Peter broke down and wept. That's our guy. It's hard not to wonder Why does Mark emphasize how the hero of the Romans church got things so wrong? The point of the passion narrative, as we're discovering, is to actually look at the hard things, to actually look at them, to see Christ on the cross, as hard as it is to do it, to hear that moment of Jesus's fears in the garden as much as it might make us uncomfortable. And even, and even to sympathize with Peter's cowardice when he betrays Christ. Now, think for a moment, right? For a community that has lost its leaders, what's the danger? The danger is dissolution. Will people lose their nerve? Will anybody apostatize and renounce the faith? Will people flee Although it might seem when we read the gospel in this light that Mark is just hammering Peter's failures almost out of meanness, when we remember his audience, when we chase this lead, we're reminded that these same people reading about Peter's weakness are the same people who just witnessed Peter's strength when he went willingly to a cross of his own. So being reminded, I think, that Peter wasn't always strong, didn't always do the right things, helps those people to see something important, which is that courage isn't innate or natural to a person. It's gifted. It's gifted as a fruit of discipleship. So everybody has moments of weakness. Everybody has moments of getting it wrong, even your hero, Peter. But God is patient as he was patient with Peter. And he works within us over time to reveal his own strength, which you just saw when you saw Peter go to his death. So as Mark's readers await their own trials, I think he wants them to take comfort in knowing that Jesus experienced what they're experiencing. And he also wants them to know that even though they're a hero, Peter wasn't perfect, that God worked in him anyways and gave him courage in the moment when he needed it. The lesson is that the Jesus story isn't about avoiding or even overcoming danger. The Jesus story is a story about facing danger in all of its fearsomeness with trust in the ultimate authority of a loving and faithful God who can and will give you strength beyond yourself. And that, I think, gets us to lead number three, which is that Mark's gospel is written to a community being called to radical surrender. I think this is actually the hardest part for us, as well as the reason that the occupied cross is so uncomfortable in the American church tradition, why you prefer that empty one. 
We want to kind of yada, yada, yada our way over apparent defeats so that we can hurry and get to final victories. That's our temptation. But Mark's emphasis on Jesus' suffering doesn't permit us to look away from the hard things unless you're also willing to look away from Jesus. He ties the hard things and Jesus together. And why? Why does he do that? I think the short answer is because the fullness, the fullness of Jesus' submission to humiliation anticipates the extent of what is asked of us. The fullness of Jesus's humiliation anticipates the extent of what is asked of us. Again, like to put this letter in context, Mark's readers are meeting in the catacombs, these places underneath the city streets in Rome where the dead are buried. When they read and listen to the gospel, that's where they are. The stark reality of their situation would have been unmissable in that kind of a context, I would think. Can you imagine listening to this story in a graveyard or listening to the story in a morgue? When Jesus' body is abused, your mind wouldn't be able to avoid thinking of the other bodies that at that very moment are lying all around you. When he breathes his last breath on the cross, you would anticipate the placement of his dead body in a place, something like the one in which you're standing. And all the while, you wouldn't be able to forget that the reason that you are down here in these crypts in the first place is because somebody wants you dead too. Your entire life, your very existence is at stake in your proclamation of Christian faith. But the gospel stories and all their violence are vivid reminders, I think, that there is nowhere Rome can take you that Jesus wasn't first to go. He went entirely and completely to the end of the road. His death wasn't like a faint. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't an abstraction. It happened. There was no rescue at the 11th hour. Which means, of course, there may not be a rescue at the 11th hour for you. And this is where our relative comfort and isolation, not just in America, but in the 21st century, makes things harder for us, I think, than it did for the early church. Because our heroes don't go that far. If they did, they wouldn't be our heroes. Our books and our movies and our, our Netflix cues are filled with moments when the good guy we're rooting for is down, right? But never out. They get knocked down, they're like bleeding at the mouth, but they're gonna stand back up. The, the cavalry comes at the last second. Gandalf shows up or something, I don't know. The superhero's powers are revealed, their true power that's even stronger than the power they had that we thought they had. Like, something rescues. But the Gospels don't work that way. Jesus doesn't get rescued. People mock him for it on the cross. They're like, if you're really God, then come on down, you know, call the angels to save you. He doesn't get rescued. He dies. And then after he dies, he still doesn't get rescued. His body just gets taken down like any other body. His disciples, his friends, have all like run away from him and abandoned him, including, of course, our hero Peter. 
His remains are wrapped up. They're just stashed in a tomb. A tomb probably not unlike the ones that these listeners are standing in. The 11th hour comes and goes and midnight strikes. And I would contend that it is exactly this reality that creates the space, not just for a miracle to take place, but for the miracle to take place. Because our God, as it turns out, is as much God at 1201 as he is at 1159. The extremity of Jesus' suffering demonstrates the scope of God's power. More than that, it demonstrates the scope of God's empathy, of his compassion, of his love. Mark's readers were facing death, and there would be no last-minute deliverance for most of them, but that doesn't mean deliverance won't come. When we look at the occupied cross, we see the full extent, the full range of the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world. It's not a kingdom that ends at death. It's not a kingdom that ends anywhere. It's comprehensive. And it's not just over Rome, which is great. It's over all. Now, If the Gospel of Mark is written to Roman Christians, it is written as an encouragement to feel seen in their fear, to feel company in their doubts and weakness, and to find hope even in the moment when those who are persecuting them feel the greatest confidence in their victory. Just look at how Mark actually records Jesus' death. Take a look, look at me real quick, if we can, at the cross, even in its awfulness and see. In 37, verse 37 of chapter 15, Mark writes, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this was, this man was the son of God. The very first person in all of Mark's gospel to actually articulate the claim that the entire book sets out to prove is the Roman centurion at the cross. This man doesn't know Jesus' origin story. This man didn't see the miracles that Jesus did when he was up in Galilee. This man, by virtue of not being a Jew, couldn't possibly have been in the temple courts when Jesus gave all those smart answers that we talked about last week. He didn't even dine with the disciples at the Last Supper. He sees one thing. He sees the death of Jesus on the cross. And he understands in seeing it that this is God's son. How? Well, the text says the testimony was in how he died and how he died. What does that mean? It must mean his willing surrender, despite his clear innocence, to the worst things that the people he created could possibly do to him. His absorption 
of all this wrongness, like a, like a parent absorbing the angry blows and the hateful words of a child in tantrum. That is what the cross is. It's God taking our evil upon himself, not just symbolically, but actually. And in so doing, exposing the impotence of our rebellion. Why did the Pharisees want Jesus gone, right? Well, we talked about this. He threatened their legalistic control of God's temple, their ability to create barriers between who's inside and outside, and what happens in the moment Jesus dies. The curtain in the temple doing exactly that job is torn in two. Why does Rome want Jesus gone? Well, they say it's because he's threatening the authority of Caesar. What happens in the moment Jesus dies? A soldier of Caesar's empire proclaims that he was the son of God. If you're reading this text or listening to this text in the catacomb in Rome in the year 67 AD, what's going to happen if Nero burns every Christian in this city to death? Can Nero's rage really destroy Jesus' kingdom? Or does all of his fury end proverbially at midnight? And who has authority after that? When we really look at the cross, we have this chance to see the real and the final limits of our own power. This is the absolute worst thing that we can do. And it's not enough. It's not enough to dethrone God. Nothing is. We can yell at him. We can hate him with our, our, our whole selves. We can ignore him if we want to. We can curse him and his name if we want to. We can mock him if we want to. He can take all of that. And in that moment, when our anger and our grief are spent on him, we can allow ourselves, I think, to break in the same way that Jesus' radical surrender on the cross once broke all of Rome. We can ask, who do we think we're fighting? Who are we trying to resist? The God of the universe has said he will never stop loving us. He will never stop chasing us down. He will never abandon us to our brokenness, no matter how much we want to be abandoned to it. He will always reach out his arms. Note the beauty and the poetry of Jesus' position on that cross, if we can imagine him on it. He will reach out his arms and embrace us. And I would contend that as Christians, our whole calling flows from surrendering to his incredible love for us. That's what we're here for. Our whole calling, our whole lives flow out of a moment where we just allow him to reach us. And when we do that, when we allow him to reach us, when we finally give up our struggle, 
We experience a kind of death. Yeah, we do. Of our rebellion, of our willfulness. But on the other side of that surrender at 1201, right? We believe that new life begins. Our challenge when we read this gospel is the same as the challenge facing those first listeners. And that is, can we find courage not to fight this kind of total surrender any longer, but just to face it? It's a question of, are we willing to lose? That's what the gospel is asking you. Are you willing to lose? And if we are willing to lose, what is this whole story saying we stand to gain? 